Good afternoon. Once again, we are turning our attention to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14. We are uh, in the context of those last hours with his disciples before uh, he goes, the Lord Jesus goes to the cross. Um, and so he's just had his Passover meal with his disciples. They've sung a hymn together. Uh, you might describe their moment in time as this sort of euphoria, this they're at the height of the, 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 the Passover celebration, and they're uh, excited, and they are about to go off uh, to their home, to their, the places they're staying in Bethany, and they're headed uh, to the Mount of Olives, and the Lord brings them back down to earth. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at today, Mark chapter 14, 26 to 31. Let's read God's Word. It's printed there for you in your bulletins, or you can follow along in your Bibles. Verses 26 to 31, Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, it's easy to look back in time and see how the disciples were ridiculous in their thinking, um, and yet, uh, Lord, help us to see how we are not dissimilar from those disciples in our, in our pride and our confidence. But Lord, help us to see Jesus, the stricken shepherd, but the one who was raised up. Lord, help us to see him clearly and find our hope in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, song, singing, is a powerful thing, isn't it? Uh, I, I absolutely love singing. In song, we give articulation to our thoughts and feelings in a way that bare words struggle to do, right? Um, poetry starts to get there, but there's something about when you add in music that it adds something bodily to it. Uh, that we feel. Um, I love to sing. I love to sing in the church, and I love to sing at home. My kids joke that Aaron and I have a song for every word, um, which uh, is not too far from the truth. They will often say a word that triggers some old standard in our mind, in our, in our mind and we'll bust out with uh, a song, right? I don't know if you do that in your house, but my kids find it kind of funny when we do it. And, and, and for example, bust out makes me think of uh, an old standard, bust the move, but don't worry, I will not sing it. <laughs> um, I will refrain. And, and during the holidays, of course, we sing uh, 
you know, those particular songs over and over again, they bring about that nostalgia and that, that feeling of warmth that we sing around the, when we sing around the holidays. And in church, we do this. We sing our carols around Advent. And in fact, we sing around Easter time too, or around the Passion Week. We'll sing songs each time that songs like, uh, Man of Sorrows, What a Name, or, or what wondrous love is this? Or when Easter comes, we sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. And it, it expresses all that emotion and feeling. Singing is a deeply powerful and wonderful thing. And it was no different for the disciples, right? Here they were in the upper room. They've just had this Passover meal and it was their tradition. It was their uh, experience that during this festival, they would sing Psalms, in particular, they would sing these Hallel Psalms, Psalms uh, in uh, uh, that that we can find grouped in in the Book of Psalms. In particular, probably on this night, they sang Psalm one eighteen, which says, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good; for His steadfast love endures forever." A little further in that Psalm, it says, "I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord." The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Or at the end of the psalm or towards the end of the psalm, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. They sang all this, likely, very, very likely, that night in the upper room. You wonder if they they thought of Jesus. They, you know, they knew Jesus was the Messiah, and they wondered, is this speaking about the Lord, and what does that all mean? No doubt, though, that they were lost in the euphoria of the moment. They enjoyed the glow of the intimate meal they just ate, the psalm they had just sung, the festival that they were celebrating, along with all of Jerusalem, And the feeling that they were living in the greatest moment ever. Can you imagine that that moment of euphoria? The height of the Jewish calendar here, celebrating Passover, singing, and they're going out to their home. Yes, Jesus had at points talked about himself dying. But even that had a tint of glory to it, didn't it? The way people think of war who haven't experienced war, right? Since, like, even if Jesus says he has to die, there's a sense of nobility to it. People who haven't experienced that kind of thing might suggest. So they're headed out to the Mount of Olives in that afterglow. Maybe they were humming the tune to Psalm 118. They're headed to their beds And this was the way they always went in the evenings. They'd go up the Mount of Olives and over the Mount of Olives to the town, Bethany, where they had places to stay. stay. And as they walked along, Jesus once again began to teach them and talk to them. And he has a way of killing the mood. In fact, it was the second time this night that Jesus interjected a disturbing prediction, isn't it? Earlier in the meal, he had said, one of you is going to betray me. And of course, they said, is it I, Lord? Is it, is it I that's going to betray you? But it, you know, it, there's a one in 12 chance, right? So, so there's a, you know, the probability was with them that they weren't going to be the one to betray. And so they probably weren't all too disturbed, at least 
By this point in the evening, they were still riding that high. They had just experienced with the Lord Jesus. But now Jesus predicts not one of them, but all of them are going to fall away. Boof, it's like deflating a balloon. Can't you just let us enjoy the moment for a moment for a second? All of them would fall away. How would you feel in that moment? You're one of the twelve. You've spent the last three years of your life following Jesus. You've given up your lively, livelihood. You have faced opposition and rejection by the religious leaders. Your very lives have been in danger because of your commitment to Him. How would you respond to Jesus' prediction? Incredulity? You're going to be incredulous? What? Frustration? Come on, Lord. Not a, why, why, do you, why do you think that I would do such a thing? Offense? Peter seems a bit offended in the moment, doesn't he? This afternoon, I want us to consider how Jesus exposes us He exposes our pride and unbelief and our fear. But more importantly, I want us to see how Jesus meets us and ministers to us in that pride, unbelief, and fear. I want us to see how Jesus, the stricken shepherd, loves the wayward sheep. That's what we are, wayward sheep. So we'll look at this in three parts. First, I just want us to consider the waywardness of sheep. We've looked at this. We did a little bit of this over Advent when we were looking at uh, Jesus as the shepherd in that section. We looked at some Old Testament prophetic books, but we're looking at a different Old Testament prophetic book this time where the same theme of shepherd comes up and sheep come up, and it's the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. We read the passage earlier in our service, so if you would, if you want to, you can turn over to that passage. It was our scripture reading. Um, in Zechariah, just to give a little bit of background about the prophet, he wrote uh, in the period following the exile. So the, the, the Jews have returned from Babylon. They were beginning to rebuild the temple. They were beginning to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the walls. Um, and the thing was, they were facing opposition to that work. And they got discouraged and disheartened, and they had kind of left things undone. It's like you go to a, a work site that always seems perpetually a work site. That was the Temple Mount. They had laid the foundation. Well, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come along and they, they prophesy to the people of God to encourage them to continue the work of rebuilding the temple in order that they might reestablish that earthly picture of worship. So that gives you a little bit of background history on Zechariah. Now, one other thing to note about Zechariah is he's very forward-looking. I mean, most of the prophets are, but some sort of focus on near-term future. But much of Zechariah's prophecy is more longer-term or eschatological or looking to the end um, of things. He is casting a vision throughout the book of what the Lord would do in terms of reestablishing Jerusalem, reestablishing worship, and reestablishing God dwelling with his people. So that by the time you get to the end of the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, uh, 
He has this grand vision of temple worship as the king is coming. And we have those pictures of the valleys being raised up and the mountains being made low and the king coming into Jerusalem and worship is at the central uh, picture of what's happening. Jerusalem made secure. That's the picture at the end of the book of Zechariah. But here, before you get to the end of the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 13, you have a particular prophetic vision of a stricken shepherd and scattered sheep. Okay, how does it fit into to this encouraging word to uh, the, the Old Testament people? How is it a word that Jesus then picks up to encourage, even though it doesn't seem like it, encourage his disciples here in the Gospels? Well, it's a reminder to the people of God that their security was dependent on God. It was dependent on the shepherd. That was the the purpose of the vision. Let me explain. It's important to note the section of verse just following what Jesus quoted. Okay, so if we're looking at the text, Jesus picks up this language, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The very next line says, and it's in parallel, it says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. In other words, the prophet Zechariah is saying the Lord is going to strike his shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In other words, he is turning his hand against those little sheep. How is this comfort? How is this encouragement? It was to be Deliberate discipline from the Lord toward his sheep. He was deliberately scattering them. In this case, the disciples, these disciples here uh, at the cross, they would be scattered. They would all fall away. And the question is, why does the Lord scatter his sheep? Why does he do that to them? If they're his little ones, his precious ones, why would he scatter them? What's his purpose in that? His discipline in scattering his sheep has to do with their nature, meaning their sin, their unfaithfulness, their waywardness, their pride, and their fear. They're scattered to expose those things, to bring them to light. The people in Zechariah's day understood what it meant to be scattered. In fact, they had been scattered. They had been totally scattered. The, the northern kingdom was scattered into oblivion. The southern kingdom, Judah, was scattered. It was sent off into Babylon, right? Why? That was the Lord's discipline, that they might know and understand their need of a shepherd. See, they had spent those 40 years in exile understanding what it means to be scattered. And it was on account of their sin, their pride, and thinking that they, as Israelites, by virtue of their being the people of God, would forever live in the land. That was despite what they did, despite their idolatry, 
Despite their, their wickedness, despite all the kings that did awful things, despite all that, they thought, we dwell secure in the land. God will never leave us in the, or never remove us from this place. And so they felt like they had a license to do what they wanted. And so the Lord scattered them. They were scattered into exile to show that they needed God to be their shepherd. But now... As the prophet Zechariah looks forward prophetically, he envisions another scattering. This time it happens when the shepherd of God is struck. And the purpose is similar, to show the sheep their desperate need for the Lord to be their shepherd. You see, the disciples could not imagine, could not envision that they themselves would ever abandon the Lord Jesus. Peter emphatically rejects Jesus' words. Can you, can you imagine? Here's Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, the one who, who is the conquering king, the one who has come to save his people. And Jesus says a word, and Peter says, no, you're wrong. It's, yeah, right? It's pride. Peter emphatically rejects Jesus' words. In fact, he pits himself against the other disciples. He's like, they might, dis- they might leave you. They might all be scattered. They might all run away. But Lord, there is no way that I'm leaving you. He says, in fact, if you die, I'll die with you. You know, before, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the, the Gospel of Mark at the beginning, when Jesus said that he had to go and suffer and die, G- Peter had done this once before. He turned to the Lord and rebuked him. Lord, you're not going to die. What are you saying, die? What is that all about? And of course, Peter turns and rebukes him. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. Here, Jesus or Peter has learned, right? He's like, okay, you're going to die, but I'm going to die with you then, right? I'm going to be there at your side. And in just a few hours, in just a little bit, Peter is going to be there when they come to arrest Jesus, and one of those servants of the Sanhedrin, one of those servants of the high priest, is going to be there, and Peter says, this is my moment. Here we go. We're going down fighting, and he pulls out his sword, and he chops off the ear of that servant. You remember that scene? Yeah. He doesn't get it. but neither do the other disciples. They don't get it either. Yes, Lord, we will die with you. We're going to go down with you. When Christ is struck, when he is crucified, the sheep are scattered. And the purpose was to expose their pride, their fear, their unbelief, and their need of a shepherd. They were helpless. They were wayward. They needed a shepherd. They thought they had the strength to endure the trial that they were about to face, but they had no conception of the ordeal that was about to happen. Friends, isn't that the way it is with us? With our own faith? We often think we have it all together. Yeah, I'm confident. I've got it. We can do this. 
that we in our own strength abide, right? I think the, the hymn writer put it differently. There's no hope if we abide in our own strength, but that's often what we do. And it really doesn't take the horror of the cross to expose our waywardness, does it? It just takes a little bit of suffering. It only takes a small, bitter pill of God's providence, right? Some small discipline, some small trial for us to come to the realization that we are full of pride. We're full of fear that exposes our distrust. These past months of pandemic and political and social unrest are exposing our pride. They're exposing our fear. They're exposing our unbelief. It exposes our pride because when things were going well, we would use that sort of Christian language and say, yeah, we trust that the Lord is going to help. But when things start to unravel, at least I found this for myself, instead of running to the Lord, I look to earthly comforts. I try to manage and control things myself. I indulge in self-pity. I indulge in complaining. I indulge in all sorts of things that expose my unbelief. The Lord scatters us to expose our waywardness and to show us our desperate need of Him. He wants us to run to Him, to cry out to Him, to look to Him, rather than seeking our answers in other spheres, whether they be political or financial or social or whatever other sphere. He's calling us to say, Lord, have mercy on us. Be gracious to us. You see, by nature, we are wayward sheep, and we desperately need a shepherd. And the good news is that we have one. He is the stricken shepherd. My second point, Jesus is looking toward the cross here, right? So when the shepherd is stricken, the sheep will be scattered, Zechariah was prophesying about the cross. One of the remarkable aspects of the prophecy of Zechariah is that God is the one who strikes the shepherd. Did you notice this? It says, O wake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. That's, awake, O, o sword, strike my shepherd. We noted a couple of weeks ago that God is the one who ordained the use of evil for good. Here it is. The Lord says in the portion that I just read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, that the sheep would be scattered because of the Lord's willingness to die and the Father's sending the Son to do that was all part of the plan to care for his sheep. You know, one of the things that I think is easy for us to do as Christians, and I, this is not a bad thing, it's just I think it's part of trying to figure out how to, how to remind ourselves of the good news. One of the things that happens to us is it's common for us to talk about how Jesus dies for our sins, which is absolutely 100% true. But in talking about that, 
atoning work that he paid for our sin, the idea is very theoretical, right? It's conceptual. It's, it's something abstracted from us. And therefore, when we say Jesus died for our sins, we don't necessarily sense what that means. But I, I want us to think about this in a very concrete way. I think Jesus' words to the disciples seemed abstract. When the shepherd is stricken, when, the, when the, they, they strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. They didn't grasp it, right? And I think that's part of our problem, too. We don't often get the sense of what that means. But when the concrete thing happens, when Jesus goes to the cross, when he is beaten, when he is mocked, when he is hung on a cross to die of asphyxiation, it becomes really concrete. They scatter. As that happens, the sheep begin to show their nature. Jesus knew this about his disciples. He knew that before he died, that they would abandon him. He knew their character. He knew their pride. He knew that at the end of the day, his closest friends would pretend they did not even know him. Jesus predicts that Peter would deny him three times, three times. In Scripture, when you see that number, what does it mean? Complete. That is it. Complete denial. And it was the faithlessness, the evil of unbelief for which God struck the shepherd. So this is the, this is the key. The, the faithlessness of these sheep that wander away as soon as the shepherd is gone, the reason it's a struck, that he is struck, the reason that he is crucified, the reason that he is hung on a cross is because of that unbelief, that waywardness, that pride. It was the only way to deal with it, to punish it, to pay for it. And here's the, here's the real issue, the concrete thing. Either the shepherd is struck or the sheep are struck. This is not an abstract thing. As we deal with a pandemic, we see suffering around the world. We see people dying and getting sick. But it's not just a pandemic. Every day we deal with sickness and death and suffering in all its forms. And that, my friends, is the real and consequential nature of unbelief. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying any one particular sin is the cause of necessary cause of any particular sickness or death. The point is that this is the nature of sin, that it brings about death. That's very concrete. It's not an abstract thing. When in the providence of the Lord he scatters you, when through some suffering and pain he exposes your unbelief, he's calling you to see the reason. For the cross. The Father sent the Son to die for your sin. That you might not be struck. That you might not ultimately suffer 
and die. Friends, this light momentary affliction and suffering that you experience now is meant to show you in concrete ways how much you need the shepherd. He was struck. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, part of the problem of the disciples is that every time Jesus mentioned that he would die, he would also mention that he was going to rise again. And we see this in the text here, right? They all forget it, right? Peter just completely runs over that. When he says that the, you all will fall away, that's all, that's all Peter heard. He didn't hear that uh, Jesus would rise again and that he would go before them into Galilee or anything like that. All he heard was that they would fall away. Peter's more interested in defending himself than in seeing and trusting in Jesus at this moment. But I think that's the way of all of us, to be honest, trying to prove ourselves to God rather than seeing how he has proved himself to be faithful. And that proof is in his resurrection. That proof is in his giving us life of his dying and of his rising again. And this highlights for us the love of the shepherd. That's my last and final point in conclusion. He was struck that we might not be. He suffered and died and went to trial and was crucified and endured all of that to purify us. I want to read Zechariah 3, the end. So you'll notice, uh, we, we looked at this earlier again in our, in our service, and I want to turn your attention to it. The shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. In fact, some of those sheep don't turn out to be sheep. The, 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 the text kind of indicates that they were never sheep, kind of like in Matthew where you have the separation of the sheep and the goats says, I will turn my hand against the little ones and the whole land declares the Lord two thirds shall be cut off and perish, but one third shall be left alive. There seems to be a distinguishing between those who belong to the Lord and those who don't. There's a sifting, in other words, and this is what trials do to us, right? They sift us. But I want to keep going in this text because I want us to see the purpose of the trial. He says that I will put this third into the fire. And refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. It's his purpose. First Peter chapter one. You remember that glorious thing? He's, he's telling these elect exiles of the dispersion, all these, these, uh, saints who are living in Asia Minor, who are living on the, the sort of the front lines, if you will, of, of of the church. There's not much there for them. They're facing persecution, impending persecution. And he's saying to them, listen, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are Peter's words to those saints in Asia Minor, telling them about the nature of suffering and how it tests faith. But you can't help but think of Peter here at this moment. 
right? Peter here is saying, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to fall away. I'm going to stand by you to the bitter end. I'm going to die with you. And what does Peter do? He denies him three times. The fiery trial came. What was Peter's medal? What was it like? Not very pure. But here's the love of Christ I want us to look at. This is why Peter can say that he was tested and tried, but that the Lord, the shepherd of the sheep, is the one to whom we look. The revelation of Jesus Christ Jesus says here in our text that he would go before them. Did you notice this little line here in verse 28? It says, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. It's kind of a funny line. Like, you're going to be raised. That seems like the heart of it, right? Like, you're coming to be raised. You're going to die, but you're going to be raised again. Yeah, and I think that is at the heart of it. But it's this little line that I'm going before you to Galilee that's very curious. Why, why, why this little line? Well, what was Galilee? Galilee was like home base. I don't know if you were a kid. Maybe you kids know this. Uh, you play games of tag. You play games of all sorts of tag, and there's usually a home base. I, we used to love this game that we called it, I don't know, Gold Rush or something like that, where you had um, sort of this no man's land, but then on you had the, the, the side of the other team and then your side. And it was always like, can I, and then at the very end lines, at the very sort of what you, what you might call the, uh, the end zones on either side was where the treasure was. And your goal was to get to the treasure and then run all the way back to your home base with the treasure without getting caught. And it was always this gauntlet. You would run and dodge and, and dive and everything else to try to get to that, that, that end zone. Once you were in the end zone, you could grab a piece of gold, usually a tennis ball or something like that. And then you had to look and you had to look across that no man's land cross the enemy's land and think, can I make it? And then you would run and you would run and you would dive. And if you made it, you were home. You were safe. You could take a breather, right? That, I, I love that feeling of like making it to home base. Well, Galilee for the disciples was home base. It was the place where they felt comfortable. It was the place where Jesus began ministry with them. It was the place where they, he was called. It was sort of at that, that sweet place where he first met his disciples and he called them to be his disciples. And now he's saying to his disciples, when I die, yes, I will be struck but I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to go before you home. And I'm going to prepare that place. We get to the Gospel of John. The disciples are bereft. They don't know what to do, so what do they do? They go home. And they go fishing. And then we have that beautiful account of how has them cast the nets and they, they catch the fish and then they come to shore and they eat a meal together. And do you remember at that meal what happens? Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. This is the love of the shepherd. That though we are wayward, though we run off, though we deny him, though we abandon him, though we are the ones who yell crucify him, he loves us and he died for us and he goes and he restores us and he calls us to himself and he says, you are mine and I am yours. I want you to hear these last few verses from Zechariah. I want to close with these few verses. This is the good news of the shepherd, why we desperately need him, though we are wayward. He says, I'll put you into the fire and uh, says that I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. He brings us trials and suffering to expose our hearts and to show us our need for him as our shepherd. And then he comes and he carries us in his arms and says, you are mine. This is the good news. Friend, run to Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you